Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Professor Michael Gerhardt, the National Constitution Center's scholar-in-residence, recently joined us to unveil his new book, Lincoln's Mentors, The Education of a Leader. He was joined by leading historians H.W. Brands and Judith Geisberg in a conversation moderated by Jeffrey Rosen. Here's Jeff. Michael, I want to begin with a memorable scene in your book, and which seems especially relevant at this uh, challenging moment, and that is 1837, Lincoln's speech to the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield. It is a time of mob violence. Elijah Lovejoy, an abolitionist minister, has just been murdered by a mob, as has an African-American man in St. Louis. And Lincoln uses the word mob or mobs eight times in this famous address, and he refers to an ill omen developing within the nation, by which he says, I mean the increasing disregard for the law which pervades the country, the growing disposition to substitute the wild and furious passions in lieu of the sober judgment of the courts, and the worse than savage mobs for the executive ministers of justice. He goes on to warn that a demagogue may arise within us and inflame mob passions and says that only reason, sober, cool, unimpassioned reason can save us along with uh, allegiance to the rule of law. Obvious modern resonances, but this distinction between reason and passion was one that Madison had used in the Constitutional Convention. And you say in your book, that Lincoln is warning against the dangers of mobocracy embodied in the followers of Andrew Jackson, and instead embracing a vision of reason that he attributes to Henry Clay. Now, both Jackson and Clay are among the five mentors that you identify in this book. So how is it that Lincoln is denouncing Jackson and embracing Clay? And what can this speech tell us about the education of Abraham Lincoln? Well, thanks for the opportunity to answer that, Jeff. I'll try to keep my, my answer short. I, I do want to thank you and Lana and everybody at the National Constitution Center for having this great event. And I want to thank my co-panelists as well for taking the time to do it. And I'm honored to be here. Um, and I appreciate the chance to talk about the book and other things. For Lincoln, um, he's a relatively young man at the time of the Lyceum Address. Um, young in, in terms of our thinking. Uh, but not necessarily young for somebody at that time. And Lincoln has already struck out into politics. He's already trying to make a name for himself in politics. And it turns out that a couple of the mentors were running the Lyceum program and it invited him to give that address. And so he's um, happy to do it. And yes, yeah, so one of his targets is Andrew Jackson. Um, and it's very common to talk about the mobocracy in association with Jackson or to associate Jacksonians with mobs. Um, Jackson was king mob. And there was a sense that, and this tr is traced to the fact that Jackson was the first capital D Democrat, somebody who really was a populist, who really championed, if we could put it this way, the common people. Um, and he was trying to actually broaden the citizenry in some respects by doing that. But Lincoln saw danger in that because Jackson ruled by fear. Jackson ruled, in his opinion, by having the mob go after um, people, and that didn't follow the rule of law, as you just pointed out. Um, and while Jackson's a target, I also think um, there's something else that becomes evident about Lincoln, not just at that time, but earlier as well as later. I think part of Lincoln's genius is he's able to learn from people 
regardless of whether he actually idolizes them or not. He's able to sort of look at somebody he might disapprove of politically, but still see something valuable or worth emulating or worth learning from uh, that that person. And Jackson's that that person. Uh, Clay, uh, he had a lot of differences with Jackson, uh, voted against him every time, chance he had. Um, and yet later when he's president, he has Jackson's portrait in his office. Uh, he adores Clay from relatively early on, though he's raised among Jacksonian Democrats. Um, and he's particularly uh, enamored of Clay's rhetoric. I think in this speech, the Lyceum Address, we see Lincoln trying to be, um, really trying to show his knowledge and almost being too brazen in his displays of, of flourishing, flourishing rhetoric and um, wild imagery. Um, he's going to learn to kind of tame all that eventually. Um, but Clay is somebody he really respects for his rhetoric. He respects for his pension for compromise. Uh, and he respects for his American system, the Whig philosophy uh, that Clay embodied. The American system was a system that Clay had uh, imagined that would enable the country to be unified through a series of internal improvements like roads or bridges. Um, and so Lincoln not only approves of that early in his life, he, he, he stands by that for the rest of his life. So he, he sees a lot in Clay to respect and emulate. Uh, he's going to try and learn from his rhetoric. But at the same time, he's going to learn as well from Clay's failings. Uh, Clay won't be perfect by any means. And Lincoln will see the imperfections. He's a tremendous judge of people uh, throughout his life. And so that's how he's able to sort of borrow uh, from each of these different leaders and find those things that make sense in his life and those things he's going to want to avoid later. Well, wonderful answer and great um, introduction to the book. And so interesting to hear you say that he took from both Jackson and Clay uh, respect for their devotion to union and a respect for their use of rhetoric, uh, which, as you say, shows his ability to uh, learn from those with whom he disagreed um, politically. Uh, Professor Brands, your book on heirs of the founders, uh, Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, the second generation of American giants, of course, is a definitive exploration of the relationship and ideas of Clay and, and Webster, both of whom influenced Lincoln. So maybe begin by helping us understand the different ideas of Clay uh, and Webster um, so, so that we can have a sense of them, and, and then maybe help us put that Lincoln's concern about mobs in uh, the broader context of the fact that this is a time when there are also mob actions against uh, the federal armory by John Brown, which you write about in your book on John Brown at Lincoln, uh, suggesting that uh, in that circumstance, mob could be used in the effort to inspire a slave uprising, which uh, failed. Tell us about Lincoln's attitude toward John Brown's action and what it says about his distinction between reason and passion in the in the Springfield Address. Sure. All that's a tall order. I'll take a hack at it and see what I can do. So the first thing I think to remember in all of these, uh, less Jackson, but definitely in the case of Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and Abraham Lincoln, is that these were men who made politics their profession. And they understood that in politics, especially in this era, one had to make compromises at time. Henry Clay, was known in his era as the great compromiser. And whereas today, to call somebody a compromiser would almost be a slander. But in those days, it was recognized that that's the way 
progress is made. In a democracy, you don't get everything that you want. And so Henry Clay prided himself on his ability to find something that diametrically opposed views, diametrically opposed uh, opponents could get on board with. Henry Clay was the author of the Missouri Compromise. He was the author of the compromise that kept South Carolina from seceding from the Union in 1833. He was the principal author of the Compromise of 1850. So Henry Clay understood this. Now, Henry Clay did have a philosophy, and it was identified as the American system. Henry Clay believed that he believed that various parts of the United States could sort of work together to increase the, the welfare of all. He was unlike Jackson. Jackson was a small government man with an important exception. We'll come to this. Henry Clay was a firm believer in big government. This was the essence of Whig party philosophy is one of the things that characterized Abraham Lincoln as well when he was a Whig and later as he was a president of the Republican party. The willingness to use government to promote the general welfare. You know, as Lincoln said, the government should do what people cannot do for themselves or cannot do as well for themselves. Andrew Jackson was suspicious of the business classes. He was especially suspicious of banks. In many ways, Andrew Jackson was a man of the 18th century. He was the oldest of this bunch. He was born in 1867, so that made him 10 years older than Henry Clay and 30 or 32 years older than Abraham Lincoln. Um, and he well, he was born at a time when there weren't banks in the United States. And, and so Jackson never got over that. Um, in, in response to the question about mobocracy here, I'm, I'm not meaning to defend Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson could defend himself quite well, sometimes with dueling pistols or a cane. But it, it served the political purposes of Henry Clay, and I would say of Abraham Lincoln, to describe the supporters of Andrew Jackson as a mob. Well, in fact, what they were were people who had been previously dispossessed in American politics. And yes, when they did come to Washington in 1829 for the inauguration of Andrew Jackson, they certainly seemed like a mob to the people who were there, but it's because they weren't from there. They were these Westerners who had rather rough ways. But it's important, I think, to distinguish Jackson himself from the people who supported him. Jackson was perfectly happy to accept their votes. But Jackson, when he had an opportunity, if he had been so inclined, to call a mob into, let's say, contest an election in 1824, when he really did think that the election had been stolen from him, it was the, the, the theft was constitutional, but nonetheless, he got the most popular votes, he got the most electoral votes, but he didn't win the election. And he called it a corrupt bargain, but he did he he lifted no finger to call the mob in to challenge the outcome of the election. So these these are men who played politics hard. They had philosophies of their own. Um, they sort of understood uh, what they wanted. You mentioned uh, Daniel Webster. I'll just say one thing about Daniel Webster, and he's an he's an example of how philosophies changed over time. Because Daniel Webster came to national attention during the War of 1812, arguing that since New England's interests had been trampled by the Republican Party of Henry Clay and John Calhoun and James Madison, that New England might reconsider its attachment to the Union. And Daniel Webster marked out this almost a constitutional theory that didn't 
get quite to secession, but it certainly implied secession if New England's interests weren't taken into account. Now, this is important to keep this in mind because Daniel Webster is going to become the champion of the union, the union above everything else within 20 years after that. So Webster, Webster probably, of all of these men, had the most malleable philosophy. But nonetheless, people's ideas on what the Constitution meant, what the union meant, evolved over time. And it's really important that Abraham Lincoln is born amid these changing views. And of course, he's the one upon whom the greatest responsibility in all of American history for interpreting the Constitution will fall when he becomes president. Fascinating. Uh, such a, a wonderful answer. And you said so much, including uh, Webster's changing his mind about the Constitution and the Constitution being a touchstone for all of these people who approached it so diff- so so differently, including Lincoln, who, of course, said that the Constitution had to be our salvation in the Lyceum Address. And so interesting, too, about Jackson, uh, who uh, did indeed uh, think that the election was stolen, um, despite the charges of uh, his leading mobs, did not, in fact, summon one to contest it. Absolutely fascinating. Um, Professor Giesberg, you had a great uh, tweet yesterday about this panel. You said, look forward to talking about InfoWanted.org and Davis Diaries and many other scholarly projects <laughs> that are shedding new light on the Civil War broadly conceived. As you hear this discussion about mobs, of course, the, the victims of the mob in many cases in the antebellum era were free men and women, African-Americans, mm-hmm. enslaved people uh, in Philadelphia and elsewhere. They're being set on. They're being violently um attacked and and killed. Um, What light can these new scholarly projects cast on the experiences of African-Americans, of uh, women who were experiencing this history uh, in the most personal way? Right. Well, I mean, I want to underscore something uh, that Dr. Brands just said about, you know, sort of what is what is going on sort of inside and outside the halls of, you know, of, of power and, and, and uh, the places of govern- governance. Um, you know, we're we're sort of talking here about a study of, um, of, of, you know, of either insiders or people who want to be inside and, and certainly as white men, they have access to those halls of, of power and, 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 and Lincoln and, you know, in his Lyceum address is seeking to sort of establish his, his right, you know, to, to be one of them. Um, you know, so the sort of drawing this line between what is reason, what is passion serves his purpose um, uh, you know, as as a, 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 an aspirant for uh, for public office, um, but for all of those people for whom those kinds of aspirations were um, impossible um, to fulfill, namely uh, disfranchised immigrants, um, women, uh, people of color. Um, you know, nobody expected, um, you know, nobody sort of expected them necessarily. Nobody would have been surprised by. Uh, displays of, of a lack of reason or of passion. Um, so I, I think it's important to sort of think about the, the the way in which all of this rhetoric was was both gendered and 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 raced at the same time. Um, and then you know in in the the spaces in which all of these disfranchised groups. Um, you know, experienced politics or, or um, you know, politicked, those spaces were, were the streets. 
um, where right where different groups of disfranchised peoples uh, jockeyed for uh, you know for for little bits of power that they could have and 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 uh, that they could sort of um, you know seize from one another. So you know it's not surprising at all in um, the antebellum era to, to to think about the streets as as a, a pretty rough place, a, a place where uh, you know violence broke out regularly um, every time there was an election where. If you were um, a woman like Emily Davis, who lived in Philadelphia during uh, the Civil War, uh, she wrote in her diary, you know, there's an election going on today. I'm not going outside. I'm staying inside. And, and, and she was pretty smart about that um, because, um, because these were violent encounters between these different groups of disfranchised people. She saw them. She recorded them in her diary. Um, we know, um, you know, what happens in Philadelphia in, in 1870 and 1871 when, um, you know, Pennsylvanians of color get the right to vote again. Uh, there's there's um, a lot of street violence that goes on um, in the city and there are, are sort of roving mobs of and gangs of people who are seeking to disfranchise um, African-Americans and, and Octavius Caddo is it, that's one of that's what happens to Octavius Caddo is he's attacked by, um, you know, by uh, one of these um, sort of ne'er-do-wells um, who, who then never gets um, uh, never is punished for it. Um, but I guess the 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 point that that um, that that strikes me about this conversation is uh, is is sort of what gets you know what sort of gets defined as um, as politics is you know depends on where you position yourself you know if you're one of if you're somebody like Lincoln or one of these um, five people who um, you know that Michael um, has identified as his close mentors. Your, you know, your sort of vision and your um, uh, impression of of politics uh, is, you know, is is something that that is a, is a place of reason, and the mob is 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 politely uninvited. Um, but for uh, you know, for um, Irish, the Irish who lived in Philadelphia, who uh, you know, were um, both victims of, of riots and sometimes were part of part of the mob themselves. Um, that was their sort of version of that. That you know, that, that a lot of what was happening there uh, was an expression of of those kinds of politics, street politics, um, which you know, which could have reverberations beyond the streets. Sometimes you know, those kinds of violent episodes force those people in positions of power to respond. Um, and to make changes. Um, so I, I think it's um, in particular in this period that there, you can see lots of examples of that side of that, that sort of thing happening. Uh, thank you very much indeed for that and for reminding us of the ways that uh, the voices that, as you said, were excluded from the political process uh, may not have had the same attitude toward these classical tropes of uh, reason versus passion that, that those who were uh, uh, political aspirants like Lincoln were. Um, Michael, I would love for you to put on the table the, the, the core thesis of your book, uh, which is that Lincoln learned from a diverse group of people, some of whom he'd never met and others of whom he knew intimately. And they are, we've talked about two of them, Henry Clay and Andrew Jackson, but you also highlight Zachary Taylor, John Todd Stewart, and Orville Browning, just so our wonderful listeners have a sense of the thesis of the book. Maybe give us a, a few sentences on, on what Lincoln learned from each of these five mentors 
And I think I'll just add a great question from the Q&A box from our friend, Derek Webb, which I know you addressed in the book. Lincoln had a famously strained relationship with his father. In what way were Lincoln's mentors different from his father and perhaps even replacements for the supportive father figure he lacked in his youth? Well, the, the latter's a good question. I'll try and get to that at the end. Um, and of course, one thing to note about Lincoln is I think it's not really much of an overstatement to say he's really kind of learning from everybody he, he's around. He's, he's um, uh, Stephen Douglas later said, describes Lincoln as a man of the, uh, pre- pre- uh, predominantly a man of the atmospherics that surround him, which I think, you know, Douglas knew him most of his life. And I think what that meant uh, was that Lincoln was sort of lived in, he was there in the moment. He would sort of be able to understand the dynamics of what was going on. And only then would he be able to figure out, okay, what may be the path forward I can, you know, from this point. Um, and so throughout his life, um, one of the things I, I, I think I might have identified, at least found interesting, is there is a pattern that Lincoln's going back to each of these five. It's not so much that they are five more important than anybody else. They each have influence, and it's influenced throughout his life. So we mentioned Andrew Jackson, the found, one of the founders of the Democratic Party. Uh, Henry Clay, one of the founders of the Whig Party. Um, also, um, Zachary Taylor, um, the winning general in the Mexican War, uh, whom Lincoln supports over Clay for the presidential nomination in the late 1840s. Uh, Clay and Taylor are, in many respects, the two most prominent Kentuckians uh, in Lincoln's life uh, lifetime. And so if Lincoln's looking around the state where he was born, thinking, okay, who are the, who might there be uh, that would be prominent and who become president from my state? They are Clay and Taylor. Um, he likes Taylor's uh, bluntness, his down-to-earth quality. He's very, he doesn't dress up. Uh, he is, um, uh, he becomes eventually a great model for Ulysses Grant as well, but that comes later. Um, and so, uh, but Taylor's ingenuity um, his, also his uh, really strong defense of the Union, even against threats of secession. Notice that each of the three, Clay, um, uh, Jackson, and Taylor, all have that in common. Um, John Ted Stewart is the person that talks Lincoln into becoming a lawyer, one of the people that does that. He's Lincoln's first law partner. He's also one of the first people Lincoln goes to campaign for. And Lincoln is not just campaigning for Stewart. He's sometimes substituting for him in debates with Le- Stewart's first opponent, um, um, a guy named Stephen Douglas. And so Lincoln is learning by watching those debates as well. Um, but he's also learning from Todd both what to do and not to do. Todd was fairly, um, John Todd Stewart was fairly lazy. Um, he was good in front of juries. But Lincoln, although could be called lazy, uh, will have to learn from books himself, which Stewart gives him. Uh, Browning's another lawyer, roughly a contemporary of Lincoln's. Uh, but Browning's also somebody who helps um, guide Lincoln, educate Lincoln, first in the social world, but then later also he's in the state legislature the same time Lincoln is. So they're working, one in the House, State House, Lincoln, one in the State Senate, Browning. And Browning will stay in touch with Lincoln throughout his life. Lincoln will, uh, Browning will be one of the few people that Lincoln will show his inaugural dress to. He'll make an important change there. Later, um, he's a, uh, Browning's appointed to take over Stephen Douglas's Senate seat. And during his time in Washington, will interact a lot with Lincoln. Uh, they have a rather um, uh, candid and sometimes tempestuous correspondence but, uh, over the years. But Browning, but nevertheless, Browning is still there. Uh, somewhere in Lincoln's 
view as somebody who Lincoln likes to use as a sounding board. So that's kind of how they all come into play, um, uh, at least uh, at the beginning, why they become mentors. And the book is largely about what they help help do for Lincoln as mentors. Wonderful. Uh, thank you for that. And we well, we can return to the question of the the father influence on the, on the oh, next yeah. round. But that was that was a great um, um, encapsulation of this book. Uh, Professor Brands, um, tell us about the contrast that you draw so vividly in the zealot and the emancipator between Abraham Lincoln and John Brown. You note in the book that the conventional accounts of Lincoln as a temporizer and a kind of cautious moderate may be overdrawn, that Lincoln had a, a passionate zeal for emancipation once he was convinced of it. And nevertheless, you contrast him, of course, with with Brown, who led an unsuccessful mob attack, uh, if that's a, a word that you would use, uh, on the armory, failed uh, in his efforts to incite a slave revolt and was executed. But what, what did Lincoln make of Brown's attempt at mob action? To, was Brown an example of a, a good mob? As Larry Kramer argues, we saw during the revolution itself, because after all, the Boston Tea Party was a mob attack on British tea duties that the founders thought were unconstitutional. So was Brown in that tradition? And help our audience understand the difference between these two men, uh, Brown and, and Lincoln. John Brown would have been incensed to have his followers at Harper's Ferry described as a mob. They were well-disciplined. They had been trained. They were paramilitary um, fighters, but they didn't have a mind of their own. They had, he was their commander. They followed his orders. So in that regard, I would say that the, the raid on Harper's Ferry was anything but mob action. And in fact, that's precisely what made it so alarming to Southerners because it was concerted effort, clearly. John Brown had been planning this for many months at least, and critically, he had been receiving funding from private individuals in the North. And so if it had just been a spontaneous uprising, that would have been one thing, but this wasn't. This was well-planned. I mean, it wasn't well-executed, but it was well-planned. But you asked the question about John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. So the, I decided to write a book about the two because I wanted to pose the question, I think, that comes up all the time in the history of democracies, but almost in private life, and that is, what does a good person do in the face of evil? So what do you, it's one thing for John Brown and Abraham Lincoln to agree that slavery is wrong, but that's only the start. The question in a political system is, so what are you going to do about it? And they took diametrically opposite views of what to do about it. John Brown believed that slavery was so evil that almost no response to it was off the books, that violence, even lethal violence, was justified in response to this horrible evil of slavery. You asked, what did Abraham Lincoln think of John Brown and the raid on Harper's Ferry? First of all, he hardly knew of John Brown before the raid on Harper's Ferry. John Brown was, he was known as Osawatomie Brown, and this because he led a paramilitary group in Kansas territory. But he was this shady figure. He was wanted for murder, for the brutal murder of five pro-slavery settlers in Kansas. But other than that, he had kind of disappeared because he was actually on the run and in hiding. But when Lincoln heard about the raid on Harper's Ferry, he thought it was the worst thing to happen to the anti-slavery movement 
imaginable. And and for Lincoln, these two were pretty closely allied. It was the worst, potentially the worst thing to happen to his political ambitions because Lincoln could tell, anybody could tell by the autumn of 1859 when the raid on Harper's Ferry takes place that the Republicans are going to nominate and elect the next president, assuming they don't really alarm the rest of the country. The, elect, the arithmetic of the Electoral College was such that the Republican candidate was going to win their first nominee in 1856, almost won, and their fortunes had improved ever since then. And so Lincoln was trying to keep a distinction, a very important distinction, between moderate anti-slavery elements, the ones he considered to be the heart of the Republican Party, and wild-eyed abolitionists like John Brown. Abraham Lincoln believed that slavery would end only when the Constitution was amended or when the southern states themselves decided to dispense with slavery as the northern states had. And he thought that violent action like John Brown's would be counterproductive. In the short term, it would fasten the shackles even tighter on slaves because their masters, fearing for their lives, would insist that what small freedoms the enslaved people had would be denied them. And in the longer term, it would make it harder to achieve that constitutional ending of slavery that Lincoln hoped for. So Lincoln made very clear in the months after Harper's Ferry that John Brown was not a Republican and the Republicans were not like John Brown. One of our group uh, questioners, Steve Smith, asked you to say something about Lincoln's cool assessment of Brown in the Cooper Union speech, but we'll save that for the next round along with some other uh, questions. Uh, Professor uh, Giesberg, you've written so powerfully about many of these uh, women and as well as the African-American opponents of slavery. Maybe um, you mentioned a, a few people in the last round. Pick one or two that you think are especially illustrative and tell us the story and how their reaction to this unbelievable evil of slavery um, through their eyes. Sure. Um, so um, I think one of the things I like about um, having worked on this diary uh, that I mentioned in the um, in the last um, question uh, uh, about uh, written by uh, this young woman named El Emily Davis, who lived in Philadelphia, is she complicates the ideas that we have about um, you know sort of the free North um, and um, and and allows us to see these um, days that we're talking about here that Lincoln lived through through the eyes of, of a young free black woman um, who um, you know although free uh, lives within um, you know a nation where where her sort of half free status keeps her quite uh, vulnerable. I mean, you know, we know that in the city of Philadelphia, free black children were kidnapped off the streets regularly and sold into slavery. Um, and and we and and we know of Emily Davis's own family uh, that uh, her um, father and brother uh, lived in um, near Harrisburg. So during the Civil War, when Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia came into uh, Pennsylvania. In the summer of 1863, she was quite concerned that um, her family would be the next people, you know, could be victims of kidnapping from the Army of, of Northern Virginia. And, and as she watches in her diary, she sees free, uh, she sees refugees coming into the city of Philadelphia, fleeing the army. Um, she writes, uh, you know, evocatively in her diary how concerned she is about their freedom, that whether, you know, they're free now in Pennsylvania, but that freedom is 
is, um, you know, is, is a tenuous thing without, uh, you know, without a legal end to slavery in the country, uh, which was not, which was, um, which didn't, you know, which, which seemed like a, um, you know, a still a remote possibility in, in the summer of 1863. So um, certainly what Davis's diary and her experiences as, uh, as this woman living, living in, in, in the free city of Philadelphia remind us is that, um, you know, that, that freedom, um, uh, you know, um, could, her experience of freedom um, certainly didn't seem final and it certainly didn't sort of free her of the concerns for, uh, for her family. And it certainly didn't um, protect her from, um, you know, the humiliation, the daily humiliation of racism in the city of Philadelphia, segregation in the city of, of, of Philadelphia. So, um, so Davis follows all of these events carefully. She's a great, um, she, she, uh, watches the progress of, of, um, Lincoln's campaign. She predicted, um, and, and she was pretty smart. She predicted that Lincoln was going to win in 1864. She writes it in her diary. She says, I think he's going to win. Um, and, and, um, and of course, um, she, she was right. Although, right. As a, again, as she's doubly disfranchised, it's not as if she can cast her vote for him or, um, you know, or is anybody going to ask her for her opinion of, of the outcome of it? Um, but she appreciates the significance of um, of events like the Battle of Gettysburg, she she appreciates the significance of Lincoln's reelection, um, and she celebrates the end of the war uh, and the victory of the United States because she sees this as as you know as sort of a further step in in sort of resolving um, her status and the status of other. Um, people of color, whether they're free or or soon to be free, that this was going to resolve this sort of um, you know half free life that they that they live, and and, and these are the kinds of things she remarks upon uh, in her diary. Uh, when Lincoln dies, um, she um, you know is, is sort of giving us the real time experience of, of of hearing this you know this person who she valued that she understood. You know, had the that that had the fate of of of, of people like herself in his hands. Um, she, you know, she, the nervousness that she waited for the, you know, after he was shot about his his, um, you know, the outcome of, of of his injuries, and then when she finds out that he died, she, like other Black Philadelphians, turned out in the street of Philadelphia and waited for hours to see um, his funeral procession, um, and and was concerned about what this meant. You know, would the death of a man like Lincoln mean um, that, you know, the, the freedom that had been won in the Civil War, would that be, you know, would that be reversed? Um, so I, I think the value of, 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 of experiencing being the, you know, the war and, and these um, events through her eyes give us the sense, uh, you know, that they, 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 they um, you can sort of smooth out the history of the Civil War and this period, um, but when you live it through the eyes of a woman like Emily Davis, it seems much more raw, um, and it seems like it's you know could potentially these things could potentially have been reversed at any moment. Um, so, so uh, you know the value of of, of looking at um, at the war through their eyes, I think, gives us um, a you know new insight into what it would have been like to to be right a person of color. Um, again, you know, it's sort of in the nominally free states, um, but yet sort of seeing that that status as as imminently up in the air and and up for grabs. Fascinating. And as you put it, the nominally free states is exactly 
the right phrase and, and her experience um, so different from, from that of Lincoln and, and Clay casts uh, illuminating light on the period. Michael, I would love your thoughts about uh, Derek Webb's question about whether these mentors became substitute father figures for Lincoln, given his famously strained relationship with his father. And then I want you to talk about um, Lincoln's other intellectual influences as a child. You so interestingly tell us that he read the Bible and Aesop's fables and Parson Weems's biography of George Washington. And you tell us that he got from there that classical distinction of reason and passion. You quote Weems talking about Washington's true heroic valor, which combats malignant passions, conquers unreasonable self. And then you say that Lincoln read, and when I read this in your manuscript, I checked it out too, and it's amazing how classical it is. He read Lindley Murray's Reader, which was popular throughout his youth, kind of every school kid read it, but it was full of classical moral axioms from the ancient Greeks and Romans and British magazines like The Spectator and Enlightenment moral sources, all of whom inspire the founders. And then you say he read this history of the founding by William Grimshaw, History of the United States. So tell us about the way that all of those sources, which you so fascinatingly reconstruct, basically put Lincoln into the mind of the founders, gave him at least excerpts from the same classical moral axioms that uh, shaped the founders and, and how that influenced his entire outlook. Um, okay, I'll do that in, as short as I can. <laughs> no, I appreciate, so interesting that you no, I appreciate it. I'm sorry, Derek, not to have gotten to your question sooner, but it's, it is an important one when one's talking about Lincoln's life and his development. Um, as Jeff said, it's probably well known that Lincoln had a strained relationship with his father. Um, his father um, uh, appears to be gruff, but at the same time is described as being a great storyteller. Uh, he was a kind of strict taskmaster as far as Lincoln was concerned, and that was part of the friction that developed between them. Um, Thomas was his name, but Thomas, I think, was um, reputedly uh, often kind of kicking Lincoln one way or another to get back to work. He didn't really have any patience for the reading uh, that Lincoln seemed to like to do. Some people thought Lincoln was lazy. His father certainly did. Um, but Lincoln um, even described when he left home as, quote, his emancipation, unquote. Um, and I suspect at that time, that word was not exactly um, an accident for him to use. In other words, I think he might have even begun to envision himself as a little bit under the bondage of his father, and he finally broke free. Um, right before he leaves for the presidency, he walks by himself to his father's grave. Nobody knows what, of course, he said or thought. Um, uh, but he didn't even uh, take a break to go to his father's funeral. Um, I, uh, whether Lincoln was looking for a father um, later, I don't know. But I, I don't. Uh, I could be corrected on this, but I don't really find much evidence of that. I, I, I don't think he's. You don't ever see him in a situation where he's happily taking orders from somebody else. You know, he's happily sort of um, following the agenda of somebody else, or uh, or just listening to the advice and just taking it in. Lincoln was very much an active listener. He was he would hear things, maybe agree, disagree. He, he could be critical. Um, and that's hard to have in a son. Um, and, uh, and, and it's hard for a father to have a son who's going to be that critical. So, but I think Lincoln's looking more to cut his own path, kind of a young man in a hurry, so to speak. He's trying to find a way to do that 
and he's learning from the people around him. But others later will take some umbrage over that feeling as if he's kind of left them behind. But Lincoln was pragmatic. Um, however, I should emphasize that while he's pragmatic, he's also engaging with the biggest issues of the time. And so you referred to the books he read early on. Early on, I think reading those books inspired Lincoln to follow the path of politics, inspired him to be a hero in his own life. Um, but they also uh, filled him with a constitutional vision um, about the founding. And that vision then gets informed by his experiences and interactions with other people later. So eventually his vision is not just uh, largely in alignment with Clay's. He's got to adapt that vision to the circumstances in 1860. That's when he's beginning to sort of really move. He's, he's the moderate of the time, so to speak. But I think um, that turns out to be a winning position. And that's the position he has when he becomes president. But eventually you can see him learn from others around him. Being moderate here may not just be the best way out. That might not save the union. I may have to do some other things. Um, and then, um, and so I think in the end, um, what we see Lincoln doing is learning from Madison and, uh, and Jefferson. You know, Jefferson's heir to some extent is Clay, although I think Douglas would have liked to be that as well. Um, and so Lincoln is seeing himself in that, at that He's hoping, in a sense, to see himself in that lineage. And lo and behold, he does. Yeah. Fascinating. Jefferson's heir is clay is such a, a resonant suggestion. And that leads me to ask Professor Brands, to what degree were the other 19th century influences that you write about, like Webster, Clay, and Calhoun, also heirs of the founders, and would you say that they're heirs of different founders? And I'm interested in whether they too embrace this classical distinction that Madison and Lincoln put front and center between reason and passion, which of course uh, was taken from Plato and Aristotle and refined by the Enlightenment. And the idea was that we have to use our powers of reason and reflection to moderate our selfish passions like anger, jealousy, hatred, and fear so that we can achieve benevolence, compassion, empathy, and serve the, the common good. I wonder if that trope was still really in common parlance uh, throughout the antebellum period and, and through the Civil War. And then if that's not enough, and I know I'm just throwing too much at you, so take whatever uh, interests you because we're going to end on time. Um, we, we did have that good question uh, from Stephen Smith, say something about Lincoln's very cool assessment about uh, John Brown and the Cooper Union speech. Well, so, uh, yes. So let me see if I can come how combine my answers to the two. I would say that, the, yeah, the, pretty much everybody in this era noted a distinction between passion and reason. And for each person, the definition was basically what I do is reason, what my opponents do is passion. Because they're emotional, I'm careful and cautious about this. Uh, and so, but I, I do think that it's a useful distinction between, say, Abraham Lincoln and John Brown. Now, I don't want to say that John Brown was moved by passion. John Brown was as calculating as could be. But John Brown believed, I, I had to figure out an, an adjective or a noun to describe John Brown, and I came up with a zealot. And I'm not sure that's the best one, that's the one I've got. And, and he believed so firmly in his view of slavery that it overrode everything else. It allowed John Brown to take the law into his own hands, to set aside the Constitution, 
to act as judge and executioner of people who differed with him. Now, one could call that passion, but it's also a kind of taking reason to this, I'm going to say, to an extremist position. Now, if you agree with John Brown, then I don't know if you'd uh, like to be called an extremist, but it certainly was an extreme version. Whereas Lincoln, and Lincoln, as I mentioned earlier, Lincoln thought that was counterproductive. Lincoln believed that in a democracy, you operate by persuasion. You don't get to coerce people. You have to persuade them, except now the irony of all of this, the irony of Brown and Lincoln is that Brown attempts to start a war to free the slaves. He fails in both aspects. He, his war doesn't start, the raid on Harper's Ferry fizzles, and he doesn't free any slaves. Abraham Lincoln, the pragmatist, does his best to avoid a war and doesn't want to take on the issue of slavery directly. That's protected by the Constitution. Well, he fails in both regards, too. He can't avoid the war. The war comes, and he's forced then, as part of the war to save the Union, to deal with slavery. So there's a, well, history is full of ironies, and probably as much during this period as any other. But Abraham Lincoln, as I mentioned earlier, thought John Brown was doing the wrong thing on the short-term merits and the long-term merits as well. The, the short-term, as I, I said, it's just going to make slavery worse for slaves then, and it was going to make the extirpation, the final emancipation of slaves, that much more difficult. Now, Jeff, I wonder if I could prevail on your patience. Let me ask a question of Michael Gerhardt, because I've been dying to ask this question. So he's got this wonderful book about the education of Abraham Lincoln and his mentors and, and how Lincoln arrives at this person that he becomes sort of as he becomes president. Now, I'm a historian like Michael, and I know that we very often succumb to hindsight. So we know that it's important to look at Lincoln because we know what Lincoln became. The question I want to ask Michael is, from what Lincoln learns from his mentors and the other people around him, is there any reason to believe that Upon Lincoln's election in 1860, Lincoln is going to emerge as the greatest president in American history. This is a historical question, I think, but it's also fascinating. We've just gone through a presidential election, and every four years, Americans try to choose a president from you know, the best person among those who are available. And I would say that history shows that sometimes we get it right, sometimes we don't. In the case of Abraham Lincoln, was there anything that would show that Lincoln was going to be a better president, for example, than James Buchanan. James Buchanan's resume was much more impressive than Lincoln's, but of course, James Buchanan is considered one of the worst presidents in history, and Lincoln the greatest. So if you didn't already know that Lincoln was going to be great, can you see from Lincoln's preparation, can you find the seeds of greatness there? I think it's going to be hard to find them. I think, in fact, um, even at the time, remember, when Lincoln's elected president the first time, it's just with the plurality of the popular vote. Um, it's, not it's not a landmark by any, a landslide by any description. Um, and newspapers are largely critical of him, calling him a coward, sometimes worse. Um, and certainly the people around him are, going to, are all thinking he's overmatched. Um, uh, certainly he's got a cabinet that thinks he's overmatched. Um, and Lincoln himself, as late as 1864, thinks he's going to lose his reelection. So uh, at least for a while, he thinks that. Um, so I, I think it's it's hard, I think, um, to uh, look at that resume, so to speak, or look at the path he's come and think, OK, from this path, we know 
he's going to emerge as maybe the greatest president in American history. Having said that, I, it's also true that the table's being laid uh, in a sense at that time. I mean, he's got this big challenge. How is he going to rise to it? Now, there are a couple of different ways he could do it. Um, and, and one way is evident uh, of one of his great attributes, I think. He's educable. Um, he is somebody who is willing to learn if he doesn't know it himself. That's not a bad trait to have in, in somebody who's about to meet the biggest crisis ever in American history. And so he will he'll oftentimes get not just everybody's viewpoints, but he'll read it himself, which is another attribute. In other words, not just trusting what the experts say, but he's going to read it himself and try and figure out, okay, what, you know, what's, what do I think is really happening? What we learn, I think, is those attributes are going to help him rise to this occasion. Um, but some people think he uh, you know, speaks incoherently. Some people don't get the message. Some people think um, he's weak. Um, and it's hard, but I think if within all that, I think you see Lincoln not let that criticism slow him down. He doesn't let that criticism overwhelm him. Some people we can imagine would be so overwhelmed by the criticism, they would just focus on that. But Lincoln doesn't. Lincoln focuses on the job at hand and he keeps doing that. Um, and eventually, after about roughly eight generals, he finds a, a, a general, um, Grant, who's going to do what he's finally been asking these generals to do, which is follow Lee and finally beat him. Don't let him escape. Um, and the man he finds, as I mentioned before, is modeled on Zachary Taylor. Um, so, but I, I think I tried to be um, as careful as I could not letting any bias sort of enter into. In fact, I didn't really think real, think about, okay, who am I going to find as mentors when I went back and sort of thought about these patterns? I just tried to read the docu diaries and documents and other things to see what was emerging. Um, so I tried to stay true to that, although I'm sure ultimately not perfectly. Um, uh, but I think in the end for Lincoln, um, he it's, it's, it's a surprise time and again for many people that when they think Lincoln's down, he's not down. Think about the Senate loss. He's not thought to be a, a front runner, but every time he seems to surprise people, and it's those qualities, I think, that we're only going to discover later are, are there, but many people at the time don't really see it. And obviously his assassination makes him into a martyr, um, which feeds into the legend, um, and, and, we, and we can't escape that. Thank you for that. And thanks for the great question. Uh, Professor Kiesberg, the last word is to you. Um, and there's so many wonderful questions from our friends in the audience. Um, and I'm gonna note Mindy Cohn who says, how does Frederick Douglass rank as a mentor mm -hmm. with regard to his role mm -hmm. in Lincoln's changing ask. perception of African-American status? And, and maybe were there any other uh, African-Americans or women uh, who influenced Lincoln's changing perceptions? Thank you to Mindy. That was the question I was going to ask, uh, Michael, uh, right? You know, because we have um, Eric Foner's uh, biography of Lincoln um, and, and even Alan Gelzo's treatment of the two, you know, of, of Lincoln and Douglas um, positions Frederick Douglass as a very important influence in Lincoln's life. I'm, I'm struck by 
the people, um, you know, who you've laid out, Michael, who um, many of them who are slaveholders, um, some rather significant enslavers. Um, you know, uh, I think it was Zachary Taylor had, I don't know how many enslaved people on his plantation in Louisiana, I think it was. And um, and I would describe um, really, um, I, I mean, you know, I, I was under the impression we were sort of talking about Jackson and Clay and Taylor and Stewart and Browning. And, and um, are, I think all of them maybe were slaveholders, maybe not Stewart. No. Um, so I guess I'm just interested, um, and, and having just received the book, um, I have not read it. So I uh, will look forward to getting some some of the answers as I read it. But I'm struck by um, your description of him um, as, you know, being educatable. That's certainly the way that um, that Foner describes Lincoln, you know, that this is a man who um, evolved in his time in the office and became and was very receptive to ideas around him, not only from people like Douglas, but, you know, from uh, from African-American, uh, you know, friends he, he had back in Springfield, even from you know, sort of interactions with Elizabeth Keckfield and, you know, and, and Keckley and, and others around him, you know, um, who he met and who he, he met with, uh, you know, in his time in office. So I was wondering, um, you know, um, they're, they're, uh, they're not identified necessarily as mentors or, or they sort of his sort of second stage of mentorship as he enters the White House, that he sort of enters into sort of a new era of mentorship that get him to the point where we know he is by the end of his term, which is to to, to see slavery as this, you know, um, imperative, moral, uh, an evil that it, it, it is an imperative, right, to to, to be fixed. Um, it's a great question. A very short answer is I don't think there's any hierarchy of mentors. I think that he's learning from everybody, as I mentioned before. So uh, one isn't necessarily more significant than the other. But you're absolutely right. He is learning from African Americans, and I try and talk about it at different times in the book. Um, and, um, and obviously Frederick Douglass is one of them. Um, um, he, he and Douglass interact more than once, you know, while Lincoln is president. Uh, and Lincoln seems to be learning from each of those different encounters, by the way, changing positions, you know, at first when he's meeting with Douglass, he's not really giving Douglass anything he wants. By the end, he's pretty much giving Douglass all that he wants. Um, which is both reflecting how the war is progressing, but also showing that Lincoln is not afraid to really hear what Douglas is saying and try and maybe go that direction, if that'll work. Um, uh, you know, I, I think John, is the first name John Slade is reportedly there as the only person listening to Lincoln practicing the Gettysburg Address. Um, Slade, Slade's daughter will later write that Slade has mentioned um, that you know, Lincoln would read would read it out loud, which, by the way, is exactly how Lincoln w would practice. He was constantly reading stuff out loud to people around him, practicing out loud. So he would do that. Um, and we know that Gettysburg Address, however uh, short it was, may well be the greatest two-minute oration in American history. Um, so, uh, and the and the person that seems to have been the primary uh, sounding board there was an African-American who knew him, had known him for years. Um, so uh, that's all part of the Lincoln story. Um, the book is not endless. It's only, <laughs> it's only about five, four to 500 pages. Um, I wish I could get to everything, but I'd like to think I got to some of it. Thank you so much, uh, Michael Gerhardt. 
H.W. Uh, Brands and Judy Giesberg for a wonderful discussion of the crucial question of Lincoln uh, and his mentors and the Civil War more generally. Uh, you've inspired us and reminded us that Lincoln was educable, and so are we, and so are you, uh, National Constitution Center friends. And thank you for taking an hour in the middle of your evenings to educate yourself about history and the Constitution, and you can continue that crucially important work by reading the books of the wonderful scholars that we have heard from uh, today, including most recently the book that we're so excited to launch, our friend and colleague Michael Gerhardt's Lincoln's Mentors. Uh, uh, Professor Gerhardt, Professor Brands, and Professor Giesberg, thank you so much for joining. Have a good thank night. You. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. This episode was produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Lana Ulrich and John Guerra. It was engineered by Greg Sheckler. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. And join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.